you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Our time together this evening will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's infallible, inerrant, and inspired word. If you do not have a Bible with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat near you or in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible at all, we would love for you to take one of those copies home with you, a copy of Scripture that you can call your own so that you can read and study the Scripture and learn more about Jesus Christ. This evening, we're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. For all of our members and regular attenders, we are coming to the end of our time in Mark's gospel. Uh, we find ourselves now focused particularly on the theme of this evening, Good Friday, what our Lord Jesus did on the night after the night he was betrayed when he gave his life up as a ransom for his people. Mark writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us this evening. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. 
And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Father, these are holy words, and we ask that you would help us in this moment to focus our attention on them. So much ink has been spilled over these words. So many sermons have been preached. So many services, just like this one, have been had throughout the history of the church. We come here tonight asking that you would be merciful. Help us to hear you afresh as we turn our attention to your word. We long to be encouraged from the scripture for those of us who are believers here. And perhaps some have joined us in person or online this evening who are not yet believers. We do ask that you would be merciful to save. That this Good Friday would become a great one for them when you remove the heart of stone and insert the heart of flesh and cause them to be born again by the Spirit of Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. In 2004, as a young believer and a new convert, I was thrilled when I learned that a movie about Jesus was being produced. So, I bought about 10 tickets, invited several of my unbelieving college friends, and made plans to be at the theater when The Passion of the Christ was first shown. From the first preview to the closing credit, there wasn't a sound in the cinema that evening. No one said a word. Lots of people were crying. Everyone was affected. I personally was moved. I had never seen anything so brutal in my life, and I'd never witnessed anyone die. Like that movie, Good Friday focuses on death, the death of one particular person, Jesus. His substitutionary death on the cross is central to the Christian faith. It is the reason that we have gathered this evening. It is also the reason that we gather each and every Sunday. It is the climax of Mark's gospel. The questions that we have been asking for several months now, who is Jesus? What does he expect of those who follow him? Why did Jesus have to die? All lead us to this passage. Because apart from his sin-bearing sacrifice, there is no hope for the forgiveness of sin. There is no other reason to explain why you have gathered here this evening. There is no other reason to explain the existence of this church, the presence of a congregation in this building. There is no other reason to explain mission to the ends of the earth and why people give so generously so that Christ might be proclaimed apart from the substitutionary cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight, we're just going to take a little bit of time to try to meditate afresh upon his cross work. For the members of our church, I know they probably got a little worried when I read a long passage. Don't worry, I'm aware of what time it is. But we want to focus our attention afresh as we remind ourselves on what the Savior, Jesus Christ, endured for us and for our salvation. Notice first the journey to Golgotha. Look again in verse 21, please. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. As they leave the city walls of Jerusalem, the Romans recruit Simon of Cyrene to help Jesus carry his cross. 
a crossbeam weighing somewhere between 50 and 100 pounds to the place of crucifixion. Simon was probably just visiting Jerusalem for the Passover. He had no reason to necessarily be involved in these events other than the fact that he just happened to be there. Cyrene was an important city in Libya and North Africa with a large population of people that's trying to identify him. He became well known to the church. Mark's gospel makes an interesting parenthetical comment for us here, though. It mentions Simon's sons in verse 21, Alexander and Rufus, a detail that many of us just pass over. But the sons are referred to in such a way that Mark is suggesting that even now, the readers knew who they were. They need no specific identification, as if they had become Christians because of this event. I think Mark is helping us see that in his weakest moment, Even in the hour of great distress, Jesus Christ's reign of grace was beginning in the lives of people who would trust in his sin-bearing sacrifice. His death leads to life. Notice second, the first of the three hours. Look in verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. In the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him, saying to one another, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The site of execution is identified for us. It's Golgotha. In Aramaic, it means the place of the skull. It's more well known to all of us as Calvary because in the Latin Vulgate, it translates skull as Calvary. The reason for his name, this name may have been because it looked like the place of a skull or just simply because it was a place of suffering and death that was well known to people. Regardless, what is most important for us is that this is where Jesus died and he actually died. He died and they knew where he died. When they arrive at the site in verse 23, Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a spice derived from plants in the Arabian desert and parts of Africa, but Jesus rejects the offer. He wants to be completely alert throughout the entirety of what he's doing. Jesus has lived with absolute purpose up to this point. Now, he does not want to numb his senses in any way. He wants to go to the cross, and he wants to complete his mission for his people. And then in verse 24, they crucified him. Now, if you're a careful reader of Mark's gospel, and if you are familiar with accounts of crucifixion at all, you're probably a little startled when you pause for a moment and begin to realize that Mark doesn't give us any of the details of crucifixion. Mark doesn't tell us any of the gory details that we have come to learn about and that so many of us are familiar with. He doesn't tell us that a victim was nailed or tied to a cross and that those nails of wrought iron would have been driven through their wrists. He doesn't say anything about the nails being similarly hammered through the person's ankles as they're attached to a wooden beam. Mark doesn't tell us that there would have been a little footrest so that they couldn't fully extend their legs and then die quickly, but so that they would be tempted to press up with their feet through the nail to catch their breath so that they could then fall back down and suffocate 
on their own blood. Mark doesn't tell us about any of the things that we regularly mention at a Good Friday service or the horrific treatment that often came to those who were crucified. The fact that they were crucified naked. And that in the evening, because it often took days for them to finally come to the end of their life, that they were attacked by dogs and bitten by insects and mocked by people as they're shamed publicly before the watching world. He doesn't add a single detail, but he does tell us one of the, quote, benefits of being a guard at crucifixion, the opportunity to have some new possessions for yourself. Look at verse 24. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. All four Gospels tell us that the soldiers actually divide the clothes among themselves. And that what it does is it connects Jesus' death with Psalm 22. A psalm that plays a very important role in our understanding of the crucifixion. If you've never taken time to read Psalm 22, what I would encourage you to do this evening is to go home and read Psalm 22, and then turn back to our passage this evening and read it again. And you're going to begin to see so many resonances between Psalm 22 and Jesus' death on the cross. And when you turn there, you will find this verse, Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. A thousand years before the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, David prophesied, of an amazing contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. While Jesus is literally suffering for the sins of humankind, the soldiers are playing games for a few possessions beneath his feet, underneath a placard that reads, The King of the Jews. Ironically, what Pilate meant as an insult to the Jews, he hated the Jews, and even in Jesus' death, he wanted to insult them. Here's your king. It was actually true of Jesus. Two criminals, verse 27, are crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left, reminding us of the absurd request of James and John. If you have your Bible, just flip back quickly to chapter 10. And when you turn there, what you'll see in chapter 10, verse 36, is this astonishing question from James and John. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. They had no idea that to be exalted with Jesus always meant death. Even though Jesus had clearly told them that that's what discipleship meant. Flip back just one more page, probably, to chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Brothers and sisters, discipleship always leads to the cross. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it will always lead you to a cruciform life. It will always lead you to die to self, to give up your rights, to give up your privileges. The path of discipleship is not entitlement. The path of discipleship is death. 
While on the cross, Jesus is taunted, mocked from all sides. Those passing by, the religious leaders, even the dying criminals make fun of him. Those passing by are described, verse 29, as deriding him, mocking him, as they shake their heads as a sign of contempt, as they mock and make fun of Jesus, leading us straight back to Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their head. The accusation that Jesus supposedly threatened about the temple is brought up in verse 29. And they taunt Jesus in verse 30. Save yourself. It becomes a repeated refrain throughout the passage. It's spoken for the first time here in Mark's gospel. But there's an irony as Mark highlights it for us. The only way that Jesus can save other people is by not saving himself. In the greatest act of love the world has ever known, Jesus Christ stayed on the cross. The only way for him to save you was to not save himself. In death, he taught us how to live, leaving us an example of a sacrificial life. The chief priests and the scribes join in the mocking taunting Jesus to come down from the cross to save himself as he has saved other people. Their cold-heartedness is on complete display. Even in his death, there is no mercy for Jesus. They mock him. They come in close, near to the cross, finally thinking that they have won. But most shocking for anybody reading the passage is that now even the fellow robbers, the criminals, hanging on either side of Jesus, right there beside him, rightly and justly put to death, verse 32... Those crucified with him revile him. And most people are very familiar that we think one of those criminals on the cross repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But Mark doesn't want us to pay attention to that. Because what Mark wants you to pay attention to is that Jesus died completely alone. Nobody stood with him faithfully. If you ever think to yourself, if I would have been there, I would have been faithful. Mark's gospel is telling you, no, you would not have. The disciples left him. The religious leaders left him. All of his followers abandoned him. The Roman government turned him over. Not even the people crucified with Jesus stand with Jesus. He goes completely alone. The only thing that he brings to the cross is himself. Notice third, the final, th- uh, final three hours of crucifixion. Look in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold. He is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. At this point, Mark gives us another time indicator here in his gospel. If you're paying close attention and like to write in your Bible, just go back through chapter 15, and you'll see all of the different references to where Mark is helping us pay attention to this day. But Mark doesn't want us to just see what time it is in the day. He's wanting us to see the theological significance of something that we often pass right over. Verse 33, the darkness. Now, I'm going to confess that until this week, I've never paid attention to that comment at all. But in 
The exodus from Egypt, the plague of darkness, had been God's last word to Pharaoh right before he sent the angel of death to visit the land to kill all of the firstborn sons. Only those who were protected by the shed blood of that lamb would be delivered from that death and judgment and God's wrath. And now... Mark is trying to draw our attention in as we pay attention to his narrative to help us see what's taking place from Exodus to new Exodus, from that deliverance to this deliverance, from that moment of God pouring out his wrath to this moment of God pouring out his wrath. When Jesus is accomplishing redemption for his people, there is a darkness that covers the entire land before God's Son firstborn of all creation, as Paul tells us, is put to death as a substitute for sinners. He carried no sacrifice. He brought only himself. Friends, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Good Friday is not an evening where we come and feel sorry for Jesus. Good Friday is a time when we come and we celebrate what He has accomplished for us. Our sins have been atoned for. We are now forgiven. It is finished. It has been accomplished. We stand righteous before God if we have trusted in this Christ. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and rejoice for all eternity that He has made us well through this death. During that darkness, something happened that had never happened in Jesus' life before. He cries out, and no one answers. There's an utter abandonment. Mark quotes the Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which he translates for us because he knows that we didn't go to Aramaic class. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Once again, taking us right back to Psalm 22. But this time, it's with Jesus' only words from the cross in Mark's gospel. Abandoned by friends, mocked and tormented by his own religious leaders, surrounded by thieves, he cries out to God, his Father, and even those words are misunderstood by his enemies. Jesus bore the sins of humanity in a very real sense. And in a very real sense, he was cut off from intimate fellowship with his father. In a finite amount of time, he bore an infinite amount of wrath for his people. And we come to this passage and we are astounded, even this week thinking of it. As Luther said, God forsaken God, who can explain it? Passages such as this point us to so many other passages in the Scripture that try to help us have a sense of what is actually taking place. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now pay a very close attention to that language. He's laid that on him. And then in verse 10 in Isaiah 53, he says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. How did he crush him? By laying your sins upon him. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. You who are of pure eyes 
than to see evil, cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God cannot look at evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. These verses and many others just like them in the Bible help us see the great price that Jesus paid. Friends, Jesus paid it all. That is a famous hymn. We love to sing it. But when we pause and think of what it cost the Son of God to secure our redemption, we are struck with the great love and mercy of God, especially if we have any awareness of our own sinfulness in our lives. In response to his cry of dereliction, in verse 36, a bystander offers Jesus a sponge of wine. He holds it up to his mouth, and Jesus drinks from it. Fulfilling scripture all the way down to the smallest detail in his death. Psalm 69 verse 21. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. The taste of that wine gave him just enough voice to be able to cry out one last time. Before he breathed his last in verse 37. Mission accomplished. He completed the father's work. He bore the sins of mankind so that they might not have to suffer the wrath of God. To redeem a people for his own possession. And then notice these extraordinary events that accompany his death. Fourthly, in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Several elements of theological significance take place as Jesus dies. But Mark only records two of them. First, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. And what's very important is for us to see that that's from top to bottom. Now, people debate all the time, is it the inner curtain? And if it's the inner curtain, could the centurion have seen it? And if it's not that curtain, then it had to be the outer curtain. And that might have been one that he would have been able to see from where he stood to realize that there's divine judgment on the temple. That is not the point of understanding this. If you want the theological significance of understanding which veil is torn, go read the book of Hebrews. The fact that the curtain was torn is what you need to know. And it is torn from top to bottom. God has judged Old Covenant worship, and New Covenant worship is instituted at the cross. Second, a Roman centurion watching as Jesus takes his final breath confesses him to be the Son of God. And when we, again, pause and think, centurions were nothing like some of the weak and pathetic warriors that we might see in a cartoon. These are battle-tested men This surely was not the first person that he saw die in his life. And it's certainly not the first person that he put to death as a centurion. Jesus is not likely even one of the first people that he has crucified in his service to Rome. But what he witnessed during these hours 
Jesus' self-control and the taunt against the taunts of his opponents. Supernatural darkness covering the land. Jesus' own cry of abandonment as he breathes his final breath leads this man to a dramatic confession. Truly, this man was the Son of God. From Mark chapter 1, verse 1, now here all the way at the end of Mark's gospel, we finally have a picture of who Jesus is. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Peter says in chapter 8, the Son of God, what now the lips of a human utter in chapter 15. A Gentile is converted at the foot of the cross. Notice fifth, the burial. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Joseph of Arimathea steps out of the darkness into the story here in Mark's gospel. You had a Jewish, per a Gentile person get converted at the foot of the cross, and now you have a Jewish person identify with Jesus in his death. His courage is demonstrated in the fact that as a Jewish person oppressed by a Roman government, he actually goes to Pilate and asks for the body of a man who's been condemned by both sets of people. He not only had to consider what the Romans would think, he had to consider what the chief priests would think as he separates himself from them because he was, verse 43, a respected member of the council. Now, you can imagine how frustrated that they would be in this moment. But Mark highlights something for us of significance in verse 43. It took courage. Friends, it took courage to identify with Jesus in his death in the first century. And to be completely honest with you, it takes courage to identify with Jesus in his death in the 21st century. Not much has changed between then and now. People will always ridicule you and hate you because of your love for Christ. They will always think that you are absurd for believing in a resurrected dead man. And they certainly think that you're crazy to think that you yourself are going to be raised from the dead and to live with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. It took courage then and it takes courage now to identify with Jesus in his death. But Mark wants us to see that identifying with Jesus in his death is the only way to have everlasting life. It is the good news for us. The reason Good Friday is so good is that Jesus Christ has died for sinners. You all came in here with something in common. Sinners by birth and sinners by choice. Your sin has separated you from God. Your sin has radically severed you from fellowship with God. And it is only through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born to die so that you might have everlasting life. He lived perfectly and faithfully, a life that you could never live so that he might die as a substitute for you. Mark wants us to see that everything has been building toward this. This is the climax, the crescendo of everything that he has written about for 15 chapters now. This Jesus has died for his people. And he invites you 
to trust in this Jesus as he reminds us that here, at the foot of the cross and in his burial, people who are seeking the kingdom of God are identifying with this Christ. Friends, it's just a very simple question on Good Friday. Will you? Will you publicly identify with this Christ? There is no such thing as a private Christian faith. Everyone must publicly identify with Jesus. And as we conclude our time together, there are just a few points of quick application for us as we reflect on Good Friday. First, Jesus died for you. Now, the question that we all have to ask is, who are the you that we are speaking to? Turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It's not the you, everybody. It's a very specific you. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, that's what he's doing on the cross, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who are the many people that Jesus died for on the cross? Paul helps us see more clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to the purpose with which He set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Jesus Christ died for you if you are one of His people. And how will you know if you are one of His people? If you have repented of your sins, that is, you've turned away from them. You have made a radical break from your sins. Repentance is not learning to hide your sin. Repentance is not learning to live with less obvious sin. Repentance is not being okay with not confessing your sin. Repentance is radically breaking from your sin and identifying with Jesus Christ. If you have done that, you are one of his elect and chosen people. And if you have not done that, we invite you to do that tonight. And if you do, you will find out that you too are one of his elect and chosen people. Second, Jesus died for the church. Now, the reason I mention that is because when we come to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we are so radically focused on ourselves that we forget that the people for which Jesus died comprise the church. Each of you must individually place your faith in Jesus Christ. Every single person must make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ has not saved you to yourself. Jesus Christ died for the church. The people that he so loved comprise the entity that he has promised in the Gospels will never fail. The church 
will always succeed. The culture cannot stamp it out. The president cannot eradicate it. Persecution cannot annihilate it. The church will never fail. Jesus Christ died for you. And Jesus Christ died for the church. And if you do not identify with the church, then brothers and sisters, we're asking, did Jesus really die for you? There is no such thing as a Christian who does not identify with Jesus' church. Which is part of the reason we call you to identify with the church in membership. Identifying visibly with the people of God. Publicly with the people of God. How do we know that there are an invisible people of God whom Jesus has saved? Because they gather visibly in places like this. Easter Sunday is not about us coming together to celebrate what Jesus has done for us individually. Brothers and sisters, it's about what Jesus Christ has come to do for us corporately. He has saved us and he has given us his friends as our own. He has been merciful to redeem us and place us among his people so that we might receive an inheritance with them. Friends, we invite you. We invite you to come to Christ personally, and we invite you to identify with his people publicly. Before the end of the decade, I did see someone die. I was there when he took his last breath. And it was at that moment that I learned what I did not know in 2004 when I watched The Passion of the Christ and could not have understood as a young man and a new convert, that the passion of the Christ is just simply not brutal enough. No movie can accurately depict the horror of Roman execution or the terror of Jesus' death. And if you want what I think about the movie, I think you shouldn't watch it if you haven't. Because words cannot describe and images cannot describe how terrible it was in those final hours of Jesus' life. Words can barely describe it, which is why I think Mark doesn't belabor the point and doesn't describe it. What Mark wants us to see is not the gore of the crucifixion that's so often painted for us in medieval art and Renaissance art or portrayed for us in modern films like The Passion of the Christ. What he wants us to see is the mockery and the shame and the substitution, the abandonment that Jesus experienced for his people. You think of what the book of Hebrews tell us. He endured the shame so that you would not have to be shamed. So that you might be publicly vindicated among the people of God. Good Friday is a good day. A day when we celebrate what he has done, as the creed says, not for me and my salvation, but for us and for our salvation. Friends, let us rejoice together as we sing this last hymn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. These things are deep and mysterious, and truthfully, we could spend the rest of the night here studying them and give the rest of our lives to trying to understand the full impact and significance of Jesus' death on the cross. But we simply want to pause tonight and say thank you. It is so good to be with your people tonight. To see some people that we haven't seen in quite some time. To be with people that we've never met. 
Lord, we long for normalcy when we can come together with less restriction. But in the meantime, we pray that you would help us to think of Jesus, who suffered more shame, more reproach, more persecution, more difficulty, more hardship, more abandonment than we will ever know. And he did it to redeem the people that he so loved. Father, for those of us who are believers, we pray that you would stir our affections tonight, that we might sing with great boldness and look forward to Sunday with great anticipation, as our brother Josh reminded us earlier. There is so much to be excited about as Sunday comes. And Father, for those who have gathered with us who are not yet Christians, God, we pray that particularly the death of Christ would be captivating to them, that Jesus the Son of God, truly God and truly man, bore our sins in His body on the tree. And Father, if they will repent and trust in Him, they can know the good news of Good Friday, everlasting life. Amen.